Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm going to be talking to Chai Patel who's the Legal Policy Director at the Joint Council on the Welfare of Immigrants and we're going to be talking about the huge range of important issues which COVID-19 has brought to light in relation to the immigration system and how immigrants are holding up during this crisis. The Better Human podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And they're advertising three lectureships at the moment, one of which is in human rights. And you can find out more at gold.ac.uk forward slash law. If you enjoy this podcast and find it valuable, then please consider giving a few pounds a month through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash better human. This is a self-funded podcast. If you want it to continue and we can carry on doing these kind of interviews, then please do consider contributing. Um, Great. So Chai Patel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I wanted to get you on to talk about the what what's going on in the immigration sector and and, and what are the concerns over COVID-19 and how these concerns might be you know are they being reported how how can we address them if we can address them and really just to get an overview um, of of what's going on um, because it's a bit very complex picture and before we get on to COVID-19 I thought it would be useful to start with a kind of snapshot of what things were like in mid-March before this hit um, because obviously COVID-19 brings its own problems but there were problems there before. Yeah well th- thanks for having me on Adam. There were you know a lot of different problems that we were seeing in, in, in immigration in the UK in the immigration system um, before before this pandemic hit and what we've seen very much is that you know, the things that we saw as structural weaknesses before have, have been have been exposed as being quite harmful, um, both to migrants and also to the public um, in a new way um, because of COVID. And, and some of those things are to do with both the attitude that we've had to the immigration system, but also some of the structures that we've built as a result of those attitudes. Um, immigration's always been a big political topic in the UK, and over, over the years, politicians have tried to make the immigration system harder and harsher. We've always had relatively high levels of immigration. Um, the UK economy very much relies on, on migrants, and it always has. The NHS, our public services, were very much built with migrant labour from the very beginning. But the flip side of that has been that politicians over the decades have made statements about um, cracking down generally on groups of migrants that they painted as being, you know, less deserving. So in new labor, in the new labor years, a lot of stuff was about sort of um, asylum seekers who were painted as sort of exploiting the goodwill of of British people. Um, in more recent years, we've had sort of panics being raised around people from Eastern Europe um, or other, you know, low skilled, as the term is, migrants, um, and successive governments have sort of put in place policies that that are aimed at at rooting those sorts of people out. And what that's resulted in is a system that was extremely complicated um, and that for migrants who were navigating their way through it was was very harsh and had very harsh consequences for very minor mistakes. Um, So, you know, we work a lot with 
um, people, often British citizens who've married foreign spouses and who either can't get their foreign spouse to come and live in the UK um, or, or find that while, when they're here, they fall foul of, you know, extremely high visa fees and extremely bureaucratic processes um, in making the applications for their spouses to remain. And they often end up um, losing that status or not getting it in the first place. Um, and alongside that, we've had what, you know, people might have heard of, which is which is a hostile environment being brought in, um, which was meant to be targeted at... Uh, migrants without legal status Um, and so Theresa May sort of announced it as being this way of creating a very hostile environment for migrants who aren't supposed to be here Um, and that involved recruiting lots of people who have nothing to do with immigration enforcement like landlords, um, like NHS staff, Um, there were even proposals around teachers which thankfully never got off the ground Um, but employers um, and people, you know, who check your driving licenses, those kinds of people are now all meant to check people's immigration status. Um, and what that's done, as as we've seen um, in recent years with, with the Windrush scandal, um, as being one example that people may have heard of, is it's created an atmosphere in which anyone who is a migrant whether they're an undocumented migrant or a migrant with papers or anyone who looks like they might be a migrant. Um, So lots of ethnic minority British people have faced greater barriers, greater suspicion, greater sort of bureaucracy in accessing things like healthcare and housing and employment um, than white British people. And that was the environment that we were in. Um, And there 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 was one big scandal that really highlighted some of these problems um, and that made the news and the government had been under a lot of pressure over the previous year to fix it Um, and that was the Windrush scandal where um, people of Caribbean origin who were Commonwealth nationals and who came to the UK as British citizens, as citizens of the empire and sometimes as Commonwealth citizens with a right to be here uh, were wrongly targeted under that hostile environment and were treated with suspicion, were denied access to healthcare, to housing, uh, to employment. Um, some were even detained and deported. And in around March, um, the government had published an independent review into that scandal called the Windrush Lessons Learned Review. And the review showed an immigration system that was overly complex, that was overly bureaucratic, and that Wendy Williams, the independent reviewer, described as having lost sight um, of any sense of of history, um, of Britain's relationship with the world, um, and a lot of issues around race and empire that that led to some really quite awful consequences for for individual people who were caught up in it. And and that review came out at the end i think on the 19th of march which was from memory was exactly the day when um the covid19 restrictions were announced by by the government i think it, it all seemed to come at the same time and and i think that, that to, to an extent that reduced the impact of the of the publication of, of the review which was extremely worrying yeah, it did. I mean, you know, the review um, highlighted a lot of problems in the Home Office, which we're seeing continue through this 
COVID crisis, it highlighted, um, you know, a refusal to believe migrants and applicants um, and an insensitivity to, to issues around discrimination and race, a, a culture that sort of encouraged hostility and refusals of applications rather than actually looking at the merits of, of claims, um, and also a system that was just really unfit for purpose. I mean, too complicated, very limited access to justice um, for people who were, you know, wrongly uh, denied denied applications. And the problem that you have with that kind of system is is not just the short term problem of people being denied of being denied visas. It's that people who are exposed to it are people who've often been living in the country for a long time. We don't make it very easy for people to get permanent residence in the UK. So a lot of people can be here for, you know, five, 10, 20 years and still be on a sort of temporary immigration status. Um, and if you've got the kind of system that we saw that, you know, the Windrush Review exposed, which is one that has extremely high fees, um, you know, all, no sort of tolerance for excuses, um, even if they're very compelling excuses for not meeting all of the rules, which of course change all of the time when you make your application, um, no real tolerance for people not being able to pay the amount that's required, you know, every two and a half years, you get people falling out of status. You know, the vast majority of people who who struggle to um, to maintain their status in the UK are people who've come here legally, um, who've gone through the system, but then fall out of it because it's it's a very punitive system that's designed to say no to people. And it can be very hard for someone to then claw their way back once once they've missed a deadline or once they've been unable to get the money together for a fee. Um, and those people are the people who are most vulnerable now. And and just one more point on the hostile environment. I, I think when people hear, a lot of people have heard about the hostile environment. I'm not sure how many people realise it's actually a term the government sort of proudly used it was it was a term of art and a deliberate policy it wasn't a sort of collection of policies that have been brought together and termed the hostile environment it was something the government concocted as as a as a means of making it difficult for people to live in the country who didn't have status um, which then bled into um, the lives of lots of people who did have status as the Windrush scandal um, demonstrated yeah I mean it was a term that first sort of came up under new labor um, when they were talking about making employers, well, when when they actually did make employers start checking everyone's immigration status, but it was really embraced by Theresa May as Home Secretary when she brought in a bunch of other measures. And as you say, they're designed to to make the UK a hostile environment for for people that the government thought shouldn't be here. And and I think to be clear to people what that means, because I think you know even hostile environment, I think doesn't quite get to what we're talking about. You know, what we're talking about is is a scheme which is designed to make it so that if you are not here, if you're not here with the government's permission or if you fall out of status, um, you shouldn't be able to access housing. You shouldn't be able to work. Um, you'll be criminalised for working. Um, you shouldn't be able to drive a car. And your access to the NHS is is severely restricted and you'll be charged extremely large fees for accessing it, which will then have a bearing um, on any later visa application that, that you make. And, you know, the real 
system is designed to make you destitute and desperate and to make it so that any public service that you might go to for help will be connected in with immigration enforcement. So if you go to the police, um, as one of one of our clients, you know, reported um, a breach of a restraining order by by a partner um, and found herself arrested. And we've seen newspaper reports of people reporting rape and being themselves arrested for immigration enforcement. So, you know, a large part of the hostile environment is not just about the measures that check status, but also about um, removing all of the safe spaces um, in public services that people might otherwise have been able to turn to. And you can see the government's logic in, in a sense, which is that perhaps people will find that unpleasant enough that they might leave and it's cheaper to do that than to individually target enforcement at people. Uh, but the flip side of that, of course, is it makes people incredibly vulnerable to exploitation, to modern slavery, you know, to staying in the hands of, of abusers and employers who are, who are sort of exploiting people. And it really sort of countermands any social strategies that you might have for protecting communities because you have a whole group of people who are afraid to come forward if they're the victims of crime or if they witness crimes who are afraid to come forward in a public health emergency like like the one that we're seeing now and who are you know who are afraid to engage um, with all the state services that we want people to engage with so that we can all we can all be safe so that's a kind of snapshot of where we were um, and you mentioned that some of the issues which are now arising are kind of, I guess, st- structurally connected to the things you've already been talking about. So, so what are the, the key issues from your perspective um, involving the immigration system and COVID-19? Yeah, I think they fall into sort of three three categories, really. There, there's stuff around NHS charging, which is very much a part of the immigration system, but is also technically the responsibility of the Department of Health. Um, and that you can see the obvious links there. Um, the second thing is is very much around um, what we were talking about with the hostile environment and groups of people who simply can't um, safely access services. Um, and the third bit is is the administration of the immigration system. So lots of people are here on visas they need to renew their visas they need some assurance that at a time when the world is making it very difficult for them to travel or to leave the country where they may not have jobs anymore or their income may have decreased um, that they're still being asked to sort of meet the same visa requirements that there were in place you know in March when people could leave um, if their visa ended where people could stay in their jobs and earn enough to renew their visas, to pay the fees, and all of those sorts of things, and the way that the Home Office has reacted to that. Uh, so taking them in turn, and the first thing to talk about is, is the NHS charging regime, which was brought in very much for immigration enforcement purposes. So the idea is that if you're not legally resident in the UK, if you're not ordinarily resident in the UK, and that includes British citizens who live, for example, in Hong Kong, you're not entitled to free NHS services. And in 2015, 
the government brought in stricter measures to force NHS Trust to check people's immigration status as part of that charging process um, and effectively financially punish trusts that didn't do that. Now, the charging regulations, who is chargeable and who isn't chargeable, are incredibly complicated. You know, we've done research at JCWI on this with the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and most doctors don't really understand them. Most clinicians, you know, who, who are dealing with this, most nurses don't really understand them. Frankly, most Department of Health officials that I've talked to who are in charge of implementing this stuff don't understand them. And it's not really a sort of system that practically works. What we found is that hospitals um, sort of go through the motions of this, but there is no way that they can actually check everyone. What they're supposed to do is every single person who goes into hospital may or may not be chargeable. And that will depend on three or four different things. It will depend on their nationality. It will depend on where they're living, whether they're living in the UK at the moment or not. It will depend on what kind of health condition that they have um, and what they're asking for treatment for, um, and also what their immigration status is and whether they've you know, got an asylum claim. Or if they're undocumented, when it might be reasonable to expect them to leave the country. So, you, you know, you might have someone who is undocumented, but who comes from somewhere which is currently at war and where we're not returning anyone. And so it may be reasonable not to charge them if, if you know, if that's the case. It's obviously more, more complicated than that, but I'm just sort of saying that to give everyone a sense of all of the different factors that someone has to hold in their head to work out if when they go to a hospital, they're going to be charged or not. So if if some just assume that somebody say so, so am I right in thinking that somebody who has who has made an asylum, who's arrived here without states, they say so they've come um into the country um on a lorry or in some sort of in some way which isn't official without a visa and they come and claim asylum and they have their asylum um claim refused and all their appeal rights are are ended and now they've they they, they, they're here without status with no no prospects of getting status Are, are they somebody who would have to pay for nhs care yes they would um, they, and the, the question then arises of whether they would have to pay before or after they receive treatment. So, so that's what I, I was going to ask you about the, the, the practicalities of this. So they they con- contract COVID-19. So they're exhibiting mm. COVID-19 symptoms and they walk into a, um, a hospital, uh, an A&E or, or their GP surgery or, or whatever. What then happens? Who? What do they get asked about their status then in, in theory do they what happens if they um if they can't pay there and then once they've been asked how does it all how will it all work in practice so in some ways it the government has done one thing it's added covid-19 to the list of exempt conditions um so i mentioned earlier that some some diseases that you don't have to pay for so covid-19 is on the list of exempted diseases and TB is another disease that's on that list. So if an asylum seeker came in right now to a hospital exhibiting COVID symptoms, then in theory, there shouldn't be any immigration checks that needed to be done. Um, as long as the sort of treatment that was being, in, you know, that was that was being given was either diagnostic of whether someone's got COVID or was the, the, the treatment that you get for COVID, there shouldn't be any question of payment. Uh, the problem 
lies with the sort of all of the things that I was talking about before in terms of complexity and the difficulty of knowing beforehand what's going on. Because the system's been so complex for so long, the message that's really gone out to people is you're not safe going to hospital because you might get charged. Um, you might, even if you're not charged, have your details passed on to the Home Office who will then add that debt uh, to their file on you, which will increase the chances of you being removed um, and not being able to make a successful visa application afterwards because your debt to the NHS is is counted against you in any in any proceedings. And that can be in the, um, in the thousands of pounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it, it's more of a question of does does the fact that COVID has is exempted from charging really affect people's decision making around whether or not to go into hospital in the first place when people are scared of not just charging but also immigration enforcement um and and also most people don't really understand the sort of complexities around the charging regime you know the message that has been going out for the last five years at least and and for longer than that is if if your status is is in question then you shouldn't be going to hospital and that's that's the message that comes not just from people warning them about the risks, but also from hospitals themselves saying, you will be charged. Um, and the Home Office saying, we will be checking on whether or not you've been charged. And what we've seen and, and the research that's been done by um, organisations like MedAct and Doctors of the World, um, also the BMA and also doctors who have, who've done academic research on this, is that there is a there is a deterrent effect from charging whether or not you will be charged or not. Um, if you're in, a, if you're a failed asylum seeker, if you're undocumented, or even if you're someone on a sort of precarious visa and you're not sure what your rights are, you may well be very scared to go into a hospital if you don't absolutely have to. Um, and sometimes even if you do have to, and we've seen some really disturbing stories um, recently about that. And this has been shown in relation to TB. So there's studies out there that show that even though TB is on the list of exempted diseases, um, migrants, uh, particularly undocumented migrants and failed asylum seekers, are less likely to go into hospital and ask for help with TB um, simply because those guarantees aren't in place um, and because the system itself, you know, ultimately it's designed to deter people. Like the whole point of the charging regime is to stop people from accessing NHS treatment when they shouldn't. The fact that the government obviously has put in many exemptions to try and protect people who are really vulnerable, you know, that's a good thing, but it can't really get rid of that overall mood music, which is do not go to hospital. Um, and it certainly can't get rid of the worries that people have around data sharing with immigration enforcement. Right. So, so and, and in your experience, speaking to people on the ground, it, our communities, is, is that the approach in communities that this, people are thinking, either people don't know that there's an exemption or they're thinking, well, I, I, I better I ride out this where, you know, th- th- maybe maybe I'll be fine rather than risking put going out into public and, you know, getting my name on the records and, 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 and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's certainly what we're seeing. And, and also... Uh, as I said before, the the sort of the charging regulations are something that doctors, nurses, receptionists, everyone in hospitals technically could have a part to play in 
in, in deciding both who is and isn't eligible for charging, but also giving people information about whether they're chargeable or not. So what we do see and what we have seen over the whole course of these regulations being put in place is that enforcement is really patchy in different trusts. Um, people give different information. Um, people who are tasked with sort of implementing the reg- regulations don't really understand who is and isn't chargeable in the first place or how the exempted diseases categories work. So I think there's just general confusion. You can't really guarantee that that someone on the ground will necessarily get the correct um, advice or, or even be told by the hospital correctly whether or not they're, charged, they're chargeable or not. So I, I think there's a lot of problems um, with, with all of that, that that mean that people just don't feel safe necessarily coming forward. Of course, some people will come forward and that's, that's fine. But at a time like this, we really need everyone to clearly understand that they are completely safe coming forward um, to hospitals when they need help. And in Ireland, that's what they've done. They've suspended their charging regulations and they've also made it very publicly clear uh, that there will be no data sharing whatsoever between immigration enforcement and hospitals, basically in order to address that public health need. And we really need to do the same thing here. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. One thing we've seen from the COVID-19 crisis is the government stepping in in all sorts of ways that probably would have been unexpected um, even six weeks ago or or, or unimaginable in some ways, you know, becoming the kind of employer of last resort, um, you know, paying people's wages up to 80 percent and, you know, uh, providing um, interest free loans on businesses, that sort of thing. But in, in addition to healthcare, there is going to be a problem for lots of immigrants who don't have access to those kind of schemes. Yeah, I mean, so for, for migrants, the government has done um, some good things in that it, it's made the furlough scheme um, available to everyone. It, it's not sort of something that's related to your immigration status. Um, but the main other way that the government supports people who've lost their jobs is through universal credit and through all kinds of public benefits that are available to um, to people. The problem is that more and more over the sort of last 10 years, we've seen a lot of visas have something called a no recourse to public funds condition attached to them, which means that migrants on those sorts of visas can't access a lot of the same benefits that people that other people in the UK can. Um, and similarly, if you're undocumented, you don't have access to most of those benefits. That, again, creates a real problem. I mean, not, you know, it created a real problem before because it meant that uh, migrants and people, f- you know, who weren't migrants didn't have equal protection uh, in the job market. And so migrants were more vulnerable to exploitation by employers and were more vulnerable to you know, other kinds of abuse because they didn't have the safety net to fall back on. Uh, but at this time, 
that also has a huge impact on whether people feel safe um, and able to self-isolate when they need to. Uh, you know, one of our one of the families that we're in contact with, um, which is you know a British citizen with a foreign spouse and a young child. Um, the spouse works as a carer. Uh, they have a no recourse to public funds condition on their visa. And even though she doesn't feel safe going to work, she doesn't have the protective equipment that she needs to be able to do her, you know, her work safely. And she's worried about her child. Um, she can't self-isolate because she can't access benefits. And if if they lose that income, they potentially also lose the income that they need in order to be able to allow be allowed to remain in the UK um, and so they're worried about renewing their visa at the same time and so really what we need is 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 for the no recourse to public funds condition to simply be lifted for everyone because it doesn't really matter what your status is um, we need people to be able to self-isolate and to stay at home when they need to. What, do you have a sense of how many people there are on those kind of visas with no recourse to public funds? Um, we don't have an exact figure for that, but it, it will certainly be, I would have thought, in, in the hundreds of thousands um, or at least the high tens of thousands. I mean, it's a significant part of, of the workforce. It, it's most work visas and most family visas, um, which obviously fall a form a, form a, form a big part of of the number of people who are here. Uh, th- there is a way of, on an individual basis, of lifting that condition if, if you can show that you've got um, compelling reasons to do so. And again, before before March, that was very much for people who were, you know, who could show exceptional circumstances. There are very few charities that assist with with that kind of work. And often what you would what we would see would be people who were trying to flee domestic violence or other really difficult situations who basically had no choice but to try and get benefits, um, who'd make those applications. It might be that we're that we'll see more people trying to do that. There's a big problem with that though, which is that, you know, most work visas um put you on a five-year route to settlement, which means that you would have to renew your visa once. Um, and then apply for indefinite leave to remain because uh, you get a sort of two and a half visa term each time. Um, you know, visa applications cost thousands of pounds. So that alone for a family could be in the tens of thousands. If you apply for NRPF to be lifted um, and you, you're granted that, you get moved on to a 10-year route, which involves two renewals before uh, you can apply for ILR. And also your time on the five-year route is not counted. So that's potentially a financial penalty of, of tens of thousands of pounds on top of what you would have paid already uh, for, you know, in order to get access to benefits for, for the period that you need them. And again, a lot of people might not be willing to make that trade off for completely understandable reasons, because, you know, the amount that you get in benefits, however, however much you might need them in the moment, um, aren't really going to make up for that that financial penalty in the long run. Um or simply for the, you know the stress of having to move on to a completely different route and have your have your time in the UK be contingent on on the Home Office's pleasure for for another ten years instead of potentially just another year or two years. And um, what's happening? I, I know you've mentioned it briefly, but what what is happening to people whose visa renewals um, are coming up during this period and and they're not able to? That maybe they've been um, made redundant from their workplace. 
um, or for some other reason they've just not been able because of COVID-19 they've not been able to maintain that continuity of employment are they just going to lose their ability to renew their visas or, or, or get a settled status? Um, the Home Office has put in place the Home Secretary has announced a few different things around this I mean to start with what needs to happen and what would simply be sensible would save the Home Office a lot of time and work and would um, you know really help help people get through this is for simply a blanket extension for everyone whose visa renewal is coming up um, for at least the next six months um, so that there's some certainty around people's legal status during this time. Instead, what we've seen is a few different announcements around short-term extensions for for particular groups. So there was an announcement about a three-month extension for people who were from Wuhan, um, who obviously couldn't return. Uh, There's now been a policy announcement about um, a one-year extension for some people working in the NHS or or in in health and social care, Uh, but but it's very unclear what that means. Um, I suppose the the main thing to say about what, what the Home Office response has been and what's happened is that there have been policy announcements that have been put on the Home Office website um, they've been they've been contradictory uh, and and slightly confused, and a lot of immigration lawyers are a bit worried that there might not necessarily be a legal basis for some of those announcements. So the Home Office has sort of said that we'll give extensions to X, Y, and Z groups. Don't worry. It's not necessarily clear that they have the power to do that, and that people will actually get a legal status as a result of that. It may simply be that the Home Office won't hold it against people. Um, if they've lost their status for a short period of time um, because of of the situation. But certainly a lot of people aren't getting the benefit uh, of of those kinds of of announcements and are expected to simply, you know, go ahead with their renewals as normal. And what the Home Office has said is that we'll look at cases on an individual basis and obviously, you know, we'll look at it compassionately if you couldn't help, um, if you couldn't help your circumstances uh, we're obviously quite worried about that because that's not how the Home Office generally operates and it, it's not how we generally see our clients' cases being treated. Um, you know, one example, which it, I'm not going to say is indicative, but it's certainly not unexpected of, of this, was a very, you know, an elderly Ukrainian woman who shortly before... Um, Bit, well, before full travel restrictions were put in place, but when most flights had stopped, uh, contacted her lawyer contacted the Home Office helpline on this, um, saying she, you know, she can't leave. There are no flights to Ukraine. Um, it's not safe for her to do so. What do you want her to do? And and the first response was simply, you know, well, can't she can't she get a car or a bus across across Europe to to Ukraine? Now, obviously, that was. What that got into the press and very quickly we heard back from the Home Office saying that was a mistake and of course we didn't mean that. Um, but it's the kind of thing that you do get when the Home Office looks at things on a case-by-case basis. So I think it would be very much preferable to simply have you know, an acceptance that right now there are some things more important than deciding on a case-by-case basis exactly who you think is deserving enough of an extension and who has a good enough excuse and just accept that you know at a time like this when there's so much other things that are going on there are so many difficulties that people are facing you know a six-month extension for everyone 
is is not an unreasonable thing to grant and also would save the Home Office a lot of time and money um, in terms of dealing with the bureaucracy of, of people trying to make applications when everyone's working from home. And another issue which um, has been in the news quite a bit, which I, I'm guessing will impact on certain immigrant groups, is the fact that for, for some reason, and, and we don't really know why yet, there's some theories, um, black and minor, minority ethnic people seem to be more at risk um, from COVID-19, or at the very least that they're, they're dying more um, proportionate to their, to the number in the population. Um, is that, do you think, giving rise to specific issues with the communities that you're um, concerned with? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it really is. I recognise right now that we don't have very much information about about this, and and that's one of the problems is the is the degree to which we actually track um, racial inequalities through the immigration system. We don't really look at things like the Home Office doesn't keep data on you know, how people of different ethnicities are treated in terms of visa refusals, for example, or immigration enforcement activity. Um, but there is some evidence that that the impact on people of different races is, you know, is not the same and that people aren't treated the same. And so we do need to start recording that, that data to better understand how the immigration system might impact on, you know, on people. Um, what, what I can say uh, and, and there's one example that I'll come to, which is which is the the right to rent scheme, where landlords have to have to check people's immigration status. Um, but what I can say is that you would absolutely expect migrants to be harder hit by COVID um, in the UK, and and you'd expect that Black and ethnic minority populations are harder hit uh, simply because all of the information that we have um, that does exist. Um, shows that they they don't have the same access to housing. Um, they're in lower paid work. Migrants are much more likely to be working on the front lines um, of of essential services um, like care, like like the NHS, like delivery, like construction, all of which are continuing at this time. Um, you know, f- for the reasons that I sort of set out earlier, migrants. Are, are much less likely to be able to complain about those sorts of conditions because they're worried about keeping their visas, they're worried about keeping their employers happy. And of course, many workers in the UK have difficulty with working conditions, but migrants are even less able to afford the risk of of losing their jobs or losing their income because the consequences for them are so harsh and because they don't have the safety net um, that we do have for, for other groups. So we, we would expect some, some disparities. The extent to which the immigration system might have exacerbated that um, on, on racial grounds, and not just on immigration status, is, is a lot harder to, to work out. But one thing that happened last week, which I think is really worrying, um, is the Court of Appeals judgment in the right to rent case. And that's something that we've been working on as, as JCWI for, for four years now. And it's about this scheme that the government put in place as part of the hostile environment to make landlords check the immigration status of all of their tenants. And what we found is that landlords, um, you know, understandably are worried about the fines that they face if they accidentally rent to someone who doesn't have a right to rent, so someone who's undocumented, 
Um, they're worried about the sort of administrative burden of carrying out checks of immigration status, which can be incredibly complicated. And they know that if they rent to someone with a British passport or or someone that they're sure is British, there is absolutely no chance of them having to pay any fines um, or even just having to evict that person later down the line when they lose their, their immigration status um, and find a new tenant. Um, and as a result, landlords have been have been preferring people with with British passports and people that, you know, where they don't have passports, they're pretty sure are British. So people who look and sound British. Um, and we gathered a lot of evidence together, together with the Residential Landlords Association and Shelter um, and, and other organisations that showed that this was happening. Um, and we took the government to court. And we won in the High Court. The High Court agreed that this caused racial discrimination and it said that um, as a result, that was a, that was a breach of human rights law. In the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal agreed that that discrimination was happening, um, but they said it wasn't necessarily so disproportionate as to be a breach of, of human rights law. Uh, we're we're going to appeal that judgment. But the thing that I would take away from it now is that we've now had two courts that have looked at a piece of the government's hostile environment that is that is all about you know, immigration control, and have found that it causes racial discrimination against um, British ethnic minorities, and also discrimination against foreign nationals who, who may have a legal entitlement to rent property here, but who aren't treated in the same way as um, as British nationals or people who, who appear to be British nationals. Um, you know, so white people with ethnically, ethnically British names. And and if we think about COVID and we think about the importance of housing and of people having a house that has enough space for them to be able to self-isolate, that has enough space for their children um, to, to, to be able to, you know, keep some space between them and adults who might have the disease um, that allows them to work from home. You know, those things are linked to people's safety and we've got a scheme the disadvantages BME groups and foreign nationals in accessing the same level of housing as white British people. And that's a scheme that, that the government put in place as part of the immigration system. So I think there is a huge amount more that we need to find out about the impacts of, of COVID. And I don't think it's as simple as saying you know, that there's one cause and one effect. I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than that. But you can certainly see some some really worrying things around race inequality and how they're exacerbated by by the immigration system um, that, that will absolutely have an impact on people's ability to have a safe space to live um, and safe working conditions um, and deal with this pandemic and survive this pandemic. And we, we do need to look at that. And I think there's a really important um, piece of work to be done after this in investigating to what extent the immigration system caused people to be more vulnerable to COVID than they otherwise would have been. I mean, the government has a legal duty under the Equality Act and under the Human Rights Act to reduce down discrimination. First of all, to understand and assess what kind of impact, um, a, a discriminatory impact, policies are going to have. And then second of all, to, to, to do its best to um, have, have policies which 
reduce that down as much as possible or, or, or don't increase um, discrimination any more than is necessary. So, so the government's going to have to be looking at this quite urgently and making sure that it's it's calibrating its policies in a way which doesn't um, disproportionately affect migrant communities and, and, and also BME communities insofar as they cross over. Yeah, absolutely. And and in the context of COVID where, you know, unfortunately, it, it's it's an extremely dangerous disease and people are dying as, as a result. Um, and we've seen, for example, um, case studies come out. So there was one of, of a man called Elvis who who had the symptoms but didn't go to hospital uh, because he was worried about NHS charging and he died. And when you have that kind of thing happening, there is there is su- there there is a clear legal duty on the government, um, you know, in the context of 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 human rights and of Article Two of the European Convention on Human Rights, which requires that states um, secure for people the right to life, um, which which can't really be got around. Um, and if 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 the UK if there's evidence that the UK's approach to immigration um, approach to NHS charging has caused deaths that may not have occurred and caused them at, at, in you know at greater rates um, amongst some some groups of people who were discriminated against then there's a clear legal duty on on the UK and and on the state to have an impartial investigation into into those factors and to make sure that it, it never happens again. Can we talk about immigration detention? Because there are, there are, I guess if we go back to that mid-March point before COVID hit um, and the lockdown started, there were, I guess, around 2,000 people in immigration detention. So those are people who are, um, are detained for the purpose of removal. So removing people from the UK, and they can only be detained for the purpose of removal. And that's where it, 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 for for whatever reason maybe they've um they've absconded before or just because um the home office um you know d- d- thinks that it will make things easier they they can they can be detained lawfully but only for a limited time and whilst removal is still possible what what's happened in, to those people in immigration detention since covid-19 hit um well, some people have been released. The government released about 300 people um, reasonably early on, but only in response um, to, to pressure and I think litigation from, from groups. But what's happened since then is, is, is really quite worrying. So there's still a very large number of people who are in immigration detention. The government has referred to them all as being mostly serious foreign national offenders, which which is the term that it uses generally when it wants to say that we don't, we don't need to worry about them too much. Um, but what's you know what's what's most concerning is, as you said, that there is only a legal power to detain someone in immigration detention um, if there's a reasonable prospect that you're going to remove them uh, within a reasonable time. And right now. Countries around the world have shut down. Um, for many, many countries, there isn't that reasonable prospect of removal. And the government has a list of those countries that it cannot remove people to. 
And Detention Action, which is the charity that's been bringing a lot of these claims, has has revealed that that, that list is updated daily, um, but they've had to take the government to court to get disclosure of that list of countries that people cannot be removed to. And obviously that information is absolutely essential for lawyers representing people because if 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 someone's country is on that list, then there is no legal basis for their detention. And what's happened is that the government, instead of releasing people um, en masse that it cannot detain, uh, has simply been holding on to them and has been waiting for individual people to bring um, cases and and to demand their freedom and again from what i've heard from bail for immigration detainees which which brings a lot of those bail applications to get people out of detention is that they've had a hundred percent success rate um you know these people shouldn't be in detention but the government's attitude seems to be that it's better to be forced by the courts to do this and it's better to risk people's lives while they're in detention and to risk potentially very large damages claims um, from people who've been unlawfully detained than it is to have a headline saying government releases X number of immigration detainees from prison. I mean, th- that, you know, is, I think, my view of why why the government's having to be forced into this is that it's, it's a calculation around what's more damaging, um, whether it's risking people's lives and, and risking, you know, the money that you have to pay out in damages, um, or whether it's appearing to look soft on a group of people that the Daily Mail doesn't like. Do you know if there's any been any deaths in immigration detention yet from COVID-19? Um, not as far as I'm aware. Um, one thing that did happen that was extremely concerning was that um, a new person was brought into immigration detention uh, exi- when exhibiting COVID symptoms. Um, and obviously that's that's precisely the thing that you, you don't want to do because people in immigration detention aren't really able to self-isolate. Um, and, it, you know, I think they were, an expert described immigration detention centres as being pumps for the disease. Um, staff can't self-isolate from detainees. Staff travel between wings. They meet staff from other wings. They go home and detainees are stuck there. Um, often with inadequate supplies of soap um, and, you know, sharing communal spaces that they can't really get away from. It's a really unsafe situation, not just for the detainees, but also just generally for the public to have people crammed into those kinds of spaces when really they should be, um, they should be somewhere where they can sort of safely self-isolate as everyone else is doing. And if there are deaths in immigration detention, what are the state's responsibilities to investigate? When someone is in the custody of the state, um, the state has a a strong positive obligation um, under Article 2 of of the European Convention on Human Rights to protect their lives. It's responsible for them. Um, You know, people who are in immigration detention aren't choosing to be there. They're forced to be there by the state, and it's the state's responsibility to inform them about the risks that they're, they're facing and to give them the means that they need to protect their lives. And, and if the state can't do that, then it shouldn't be holding them in immigration detention. So I think if, if there are deaths, then um, we'll certainly see, I would have thought, a public inquiry um, on that basis in, into how those deaths came to happen and what the state should have done 
um, in order to prevent that from happening. One thing that I am aware of where, you know, there's already been a breach of these obligations is that when COVID hit, the state had to be forced, and I'm not sure if it even fully has, to even give immigration detainees the basic information that they needed about the fact that this pandemic was happening, you know, what COVID was, what people needed to do in order to stay safe. Um, so I think there've already been quite substantial failings. Um, I think it's it's pretty clear that people in immigration detention are not are not safe in immigration detention. And also it's very unclear whether there is actually a legal basis at all for, for holding people in immigration detention in the vast majority of cases. Um, so it's really, really worrying that we haven't seen what's happened in many other countries, uh, which is simply that the state releases people in immigration detention because there's really no reason to be currently holding people um, in, in, in these circumstances. I don't know if you saw, but yes, yesterday, we're recording this on Thursday, um, the 30th of April, and yesterday, I think it was, um, Cherie Blair um, was interviewed and, and she said she didn't really see the, the point of a public inquiry. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here um, because lots of people are calling for public inquiries in, in, in various areas um, in, uh, in relation to COVID-19. And obviously public inquiries are the 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 way the states can um learn from serious disasters or things that go very wrong um so so it's quite natural to say we need public inquiries in various areas and 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 sheree blair was saying well she doesn't she thinks it would be it's better to have sort of creative uh constructive leadership who are looking forward than than looking backwards but but it strikes me that we we really do need to understand what has happened just on a basic level because everything's happened so quickly. It's been a, a complete and utter disaster. And I'm not saying necessarily it's it's anybody's fault because I don't think it's possible to, to know quite yet. But, you know, uh, over 25,000 people have died. It, it's affected everybody, you know, millions more. And it just seems like there's going to have to be some process and, um, to to pick up the pieces and understand what happened and try and learn from it because otherwise you know if another pandemic hits which it could you know any day it could be in 10 minutes or or 10 years or 100 years we just won't be prepared i yeah i I mean i completely agree with that i think in the context of immigration that there are other there are a few other there's another compelling reason which is that i i don't think that there's that will to learn um in government i think you know, if you're talking about, well, why didn't we have enough PPE? Or if this happens again, um, how can we do track and tracing better? How can we do track and tracing at all? I think those questions, potentially, m- maybe we would have the will to learn those lessons without without a public inquiry forcing that in, you know, in into, into being. But when it comes to other questions, like, why did we go ahead with, for example, the NHS charging regime, when there was no real evidence that it raised any money, and many charities, including you know, including us, um, had very clear evidence of how it would risk people's lives, even outside of a pandemic situation. Um, why did we go ahead with that? Why did we go ahead um, with measures that stop um, that the massively disincentivize? Uh, migrants from coming forward to essential emergency services um, when we knew that that would cause problems. 
I mean, those things have been happening for years. What's happened with COVID is that we're seeing really starkly how how that's affecting people and we may get a better understanding of how many people have been affected by by some of these measures because of the fact that everyone is now looking at how can we make our society more resilient how can we make sure everyone is protected um, when disaster strikes but without without a legal mechanism to to enforce an investigation into some of these things and into, into some of these deaths particularly if there's a discriminatory impact I just don't see the political will being there to ask some of these questions and to really get to the bottom of it. So I think, it, you know, this is why we have, this is why we have the mechanism of a public inquiry. It's it's to force the state to look at things that it doesn't necessarily want to look at. So I just want to finish off with the Joint Council on the Welfare of Immigrants work at the moment and, and what you're doing to try and work your way through this crisis. So in terms of immediate response, we've um been you know giving evidence to the government and to parliamentary committees on just what the emergency steps are that are needed to protect people um and to protect public health and and what we've said is very simple it's it's that you need measures that are easy to communicate and that are very hard for people to misinterpret and that prioritize public health over immigration control because making sure that that the disease isn't allowed to spread is the most important thing. So, you know, suspend NHS charging completely. Um, tell people that you've done that. Tell people that you're not going to share their information with with the Home Office. Um, allow everyone to claim the same level of benefits um, for the period of the crisis so that people can stop work if they need to. Um, and extend everyone's visa so no one's worried about staying in their job so that they can justify their visa renewal. Um, so no one's worried about continuing to work when they should in fact be self-isolating because they need to scrape together money for fees um, or, or to maintain the level of income that they're supposed to have in order to be allowed to remain in the country. Um, and then the bigger picture stuff, I think there is some encouraging things that have happened um, recently. One of them is that we are starting to talk about the contribution and the value of migration in ways that aren't just about how much people earn. I think we, we came into this year with with a Tory government that was very much um, focused on increasing migration for high earners and cracking down on everyone else. They know that they can't get away with that anymore and they're going to start talking about key workers and they're going to start talking about social care and about NHS workers the challenge for us as a sector, the challenge for everyone, I think, is to not allow that to become another conversation about dividing people up into categories of who is and isn't valuable um, as a resource. So, it, you know, it's all very well that we have now recognised that care work is essential. Um, we need to keep going with that conversation and we need to recognise that really you know, migrants who come to the, this country are human beings. Um, they have families who want them to be here. They have friends who want them to be here and to have lives that are safe and secure. And a lot more of our conversations in the immigration system needs to be about how we secure rights for communities and for people who are part of our community, um, rather than continuing to sort of divide people up into in, into categories of 
who is and isn't deserving of, of the basic right to be safe. So people are talking about potential differences to how we treat each other after COVID-19. And you can see it going different ways, can't you? You could see people just sort of snapping back into where, where they were because there's this sort of psychological need to just go back to what people describe as normal. Or having all experienced something together, um, something that's quite sort of, you know, leveling in a way um, and you know, focusing on, on people's welfare fundamentally and, and, and also um, also celebrating people who, whose jobs are to look after, you know, other human beings. That, that may lead, yeah. lead to some sort of change in, in our attitudes towards each other. But, but I mean, my expectation is if there's going to be an opportunity, it will be a short opportunity to do things differently. Because people over the medium term, people will almost certainly go back to where they were. But there might just be a moment of of reflectiveness and of um, sensitivity, which is where where there is an opportunity to to, to talk about talk with each other differently and, and treat each other differently. I think you're right. I mean, I think I'm. You know, I I on the one hand, I don't want to be overly optimistic. On um, the other hand, I don't I don't want to be despairing because I think there's something very knew about this moment, but I agree it could fade very quickly. I think on top of on top of us looking at people who are caring, I think the one thing that this crisis has shown us most, most of all, is that, you know, everyone that we rely upon to keep this country running, um, the people that we rely upon to keep this country running are the most vulnerable in society to, to many things. You know, many undocumented migrants work in the care sector, work in delivery services, um, work in construction. And those are the people who are continuing to do their jobs and who need to keep doing their jobs. Um, many of the lowest paid people on the most sort of vulnerable visa routes who are most sort of talked about in terms of being the low earners who don't contribute enough in tax are the people that are still showing up to work every day, um, whether it's to do cleaning, whether it's to, you know, do caring work, whether it's doing caring work formally or informally, you know, those are the people who are currently showing up and who are visible um, as keeping our society running. And I think we have to do whatever we can to take this opportunity to make sure that we remember that um, and that we provide more sort of sustainable uh, solutions for those people to actually have, you know, safe safe lives where they feel part of the community and where they're not excluded from you know basic things like being able to call the police you know when when someone's threatening them without being worried about um you know what that what consequences that might have for their visa let's leave it then on on that cautiously um hopeful note um and 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 hopefully there will be some sort of breaking of the ice um in terms of how we how we treat each other and the spirit of human rights maybe we can be a bit more of a sensitive society coming out than going into this crisis Um, but thanks very much for coming on the podcast um, Chai Patel thanks Adam thank you very much to Chai Patel who's legal policy director at the Joint Council on the Welfare of Immigrants you can find out more about the Joint Council on their website Um, The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law in their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And they are advertising three lectureships at the moment, one of which is in human rights. 
This is a self-funded podcast, so it would be extremely appreciated if you would consider giving a few pounds a month to support it. Patreon.com forward slash better human. Thanks very much. Keep safe and well. I'm Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Speak to you next time. Thank you.